Today's interview is super special for me because I'm bringing on a Boise State alum who had quite the career in the NBA, but his journey to get there was super unique. Today, he's going to be sharing life lessons. He's going to be talking about his NBA career, talking about the players he's guarded, the players he played with, his mentors, and who he mentored. All sorts of stories today on the Game Time Guru. So, what time is it? Game Time Boost! This is the Game Time Guru Podcast where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's going on, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. You guys know by now, four years running, my name is Shane Larson, host of the show. We really appreciate everybody who has tuned in, been supporting the show since the beginning. We've reached 88 different countries, 60,000 downloads, and it continues to grow. So we appreciate everybody for the support. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite platforms. You can see it here in the video. We've got it on YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Google Podcast, every single podcast platform you can even find it on. Go subscribe, give me a review if you can, um, and share it with your friends and family. Now, listen, guys, the show wouldn't be possible without my sponsors, 208 Printing. If you guys want anything done for your, your clothing, your brand, anything, if you have shirts, hats, anything, you want to be a walking billboard, Guru Vision t-shirts, whatever, go to madeby208.com. They'll get you taken care of for your business or your brand, 208 Printing, the title sponsor of the podcast. Now, today... Very special episode for me. I, I am super honored and, and blessed to, to bring on our guest here, um, an individual who dominated at Boise State, but also played over 540 games in the National Basketball Association. His name is Chris Childs. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show, man. Hey, Shane, it's my pleasure, man. Glad to, glad to be a part of it. Yeah, man, we're, we're super excited to have you here. Um, you know, you're... You're a legend here in the Valley, uh, but a lot of people that watched you in the NBA didn't realize that you came from Boise. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that really quickly. You know, being a Boise State alum myself, just growing up here, you know, your name is there uh, in in the realm of Boise State athletes. I mean, the the ones that made it to the next level, and there's very few of them that have, have had the career like you've had. Talk to us about your experience at Boise and what took you to Boise, Idaho out of high school. Well, uh, initially... Uh, coming out of Bakersfield, um, you know, I was I was highly recruited. Uh, I could have went to a lot of the big um, Pac-10 schools, which which is not the Pac-10 anymore. But uh, I was going to go to one of those schools. But coming from Bakersfield and being from uh, the inner city, uh, the hood per se, uh, when it was time to take the uh, SAT and ACT test, uh, I thought it was biased. Uh, towards minorities because we didn't see and deal uh, in the same life of everyone else. So it was very hard for us to consume a lot of the questions that they presented to us to take those tests. So I, I, um, I kind of, you know, boycotted per se uh, the SAT. Uh, I had a lot of the student uh, uh, union uh, at our school. I had them uh, boycotted and uh, a lot of the colleges ran away from that because they thought I was being uh, militant. And so when it came time to finally take the test, my dad said, well, if you're going to do this, 
stick by your guns, but you're going to eventually have to take the test. And by the time I did take it, uh, there was only four schools uh, to choose from because I didn't want to go to those other schools who left and didn't offer me a scholarship anymore. So it was SMU, uh, Fresno State, UNLV, and Boise State. Me being familiar with who uh, Bobby Dye at the time, uh, Boise was in the running. So I went to SMU, uh, was getting ready to sign with them, but they, while I was on the plane, they got the death penalty. Uh, I think they got suspended or they got on probation or something for like four years, couldn't play in the big tournament. Um, so I left there, I was on my way back. I was gonna go to Las Vegas and sign with UNLV, but they end up uh, signing Greg Anthony and telling me that Greg Anthony was going to start. And I remember that I, you know, pretty much beat up on Greg Anthony when he was at Portland State because he went to Portland State before UNLV. And so I was like, nah, I want to start. That's my whole goal. And so Bobby Dye coached at Cal State Bakersfield. And so he called me and uh, had me come down there and once I got to the city and the guys that picked me up, I remember like it was yesterday, was Eric Hayes, Coach Ryder, and I think it was Kelvin, Kelvin Sampson and uh, Jeff Kelly, our center. And so when I met those guys and saw the city, because I've always liked the change of climate, the cold and the warm, and just saw how beautiful the city of Boise was with the mountains in the background and uh, at the time, the people that were there, uh, when I walked on the campus, you know, I said, this is going to be my school of choice. And when Coach Dye said that I would have an opportunity to start right away, it wasn't going to be given to me. I had to earn it. Uh, Boise was my school of choice. Wow. What a a journey there that I didn't even know existed, man. Like, that's awesome. This is the coolest thing because you get to hear the stories. That's the whole point of this show is I want to hear the, the behind the scenes stuff. So you get to Boise it was a roundabout way to get there. And, yes, and you, you actually like the city. Talk to us about that too. Like, did you, I mean, you've become kind of part of the culture here at Boise state for those who understand the history of the school and, and, and whatnot. But what was your favorite part about Boise? Because from someone like myself, I'll be a hundred percent real, Chris, I I'm born and raised here, been here my whole entire life. So for, you know, 32 plus years I'm here and I get so mad. Sometimes I'll say stuff about like, Oh, I hate Boise because, it's so cold or this and that. Like, what was your favorite part about the city coming from California? I just, you know, where I'm from, we have the mountains. So when I got there and I saw the mountains, I, I fell in love with it. Uh, I, the cold didn't bother me because my junior year of high school, I went to school with my cousin in Richland, Washington. So that that part of it didn't bother me. Uh, I love the fish. I love the hunt. I love the golf. So I had all three of those things in. You know, I'm I'm uh, a, a person that always roots for the underdog. I don't pick the favorites ever. And so I knew it was going to be a challenge, and I love challenges. Uh, I knew we were going to be the underdog, and it was my goal to put – because the football team was already on the map, whether it's for their play or the blue turf. Right. So uh, I wanted to put Boise State basketball on the map and so that people uh, after me, uh, which eventually happened uh, um, after I left Boise, uh, two guys from my uh, high school 
uh, end up coming to Boise State, Archie Wright and Arthur Charles. Uh, they follow me. So the plan worked that I was able to, um, not only by myself, but with my teammates, uh, with the city, the fans, uh, uh, all the, the teachers, uh, all the people that uh, helped my stay there be uh, a real easy transition uh put boise state on the map that's what i'm talking about man that's so cool it's so cool to hear it from someone like yourself too just like yeah it's so awesome you know i gotta ask this question on behalf of my uncle i told you before we started recording my <laughs> uncle wanted to ask some questions here's one. Right. what was your favorite memory of coach bobby die oh gosh uh I tell this story to the kids I train. We were in um, we were in Reno, and we got to the gym. There was no balls, and the lights were out. We had a little bit of light, and we had a two-hour practice. Coach, and then we didn't have any balls, so we had to act like we were passing. <laughs> and the funny, the funny part about it, one time he said, "Chris, that was a lazy pass." I'm like, Coach. We don't have a damn ball. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you have to act like you have a ball. And so, yeah, that that uh, it, it when you get older, you realize uh, what he what I realized what he was saying. It was attention to detail. Act like you're out there playing, even if you're not. If your arms, if if the if your arms are slow through the motion, then I understand he was saying it was a lazy pass. So. Coach Dye and, and Coach Jensen, Coach Ryder, um, shoot, Stewie, the trainers, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting our uh, our school advisor. Um, shoot, they, they hopefully you guys forgive me. Uh, you know you are you. Everyone was a part of that process, but that story with Coach Dye uh, having a practice in the dark with no balls for two hours was a classic. That's so, that's awesome. Actually. Yeah. It definitely doesn't, you know, you don't forget those types of memories. You know what I mean? Those, that actually sounds hilarious. I guess it, it makes sense too. As a former boxer myself, I mean, shadow boxing coaches used to get mad. At, I mean, you're not hitting anybody, but like, if you were lazy, they would tell you stuff. You're like, dude, there's no opponent. S similar concept, but it's just funny. Cause it's about a basketball. Like you're doing things. Yeah, slow but motion. It, it, it's the same thing. Cause I, I boxed. And if you leave that jab out there too long, you know, you're not covered up with the offhand or you're not moving your head after you jab and leaving that head right there. I, I get that. So that's that's why I don't box anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You got that's what they always say. What did, what did Max Holloway just say? You have one brain. Take care of it. Yeah, that's also why I don't box anymore. <laughs> Perfect. Put it on a T-shirt. <laughs> there you go. So so, Chris, you go from Boise into the into the NBA and you had quite a, a career in the NBA. Like I said, well, I went a, to the CBA first. So you went to the CBA. Okay. Talk to us about yeah. the transition into the CBA before heading up to the NBA. Well, it was difficult because, you know, at Boise state, my junior year, I was one of the best guards to come out of wet, out the West. Uh, I was in sports illustrated, uh, projected to be a, a late first round pick and had a lot of success at Boise, but ended up not getting drafted. Uh, went through a transition through the, in the CBA. Uh, it's a different type of league, you know, having two kids at the time, uh, third on the way, making $500 before taxes. So it was a difficult uh, time. Shout out to Carla Childs, my ex-wife, my kids, Jesse, Jenny, Jay, uh, Amia, 
Crystal Corey, uh, stuck by me. And if it wasn't for them being that support system, I don't know if I would have continued playing. But it was something that I uh, dreamt of and knew that that was going to be my path of being either professional uh, basketball player or baseball player. And so uh, the first few years were difficult. I got traded uh, to a lot of different teams in the CBA for whatever reason. I'm not sure. Uh, it was just a different type of league back then. Uh, but I was lucky. Uh, I, I remember the, the turning point was when uh, I was in Quad City, uh, Iowa, playing for the uh, Quad City Thunder. And, you know, just like most young men and a lot of people, you know, to come out of Boise, there's not a lot to do. So you go to parties, you drink out of kegs and tailgate and all kind of stuff. And so um, I consumed alcohol at a, at a high level. And the turning point was when I woke up and I, hopefully my son doesn't, you know, get mad at me for telling this story, but uh, he was asleep and I, I woke up, I was at the edge of his bed sleep as well. Uh, I always checked in on my, my kids when they were younger, and I still do to this day. But at that time, I fell asleep on the edge of his bed. I missed practice. And, you know, that's when uh, Carla, my ex-wife, the coach, and then uh, rest in peace, and DeLong, who's the owner, who stuck by me and believed in me, uh, asked me, did I think I needed help? And a lot of times uh, people think it's just the drinking part. That's just one of the symptoms. But I didn't know how to live life on life terms to be able to separate the two and not divulge and over divulging in alcohol and not having it. There's no such thing as a casual drinker for me. So uh, and along, like I said, rest in peace, one of the best owners at any level flew me on her jet down in Houston, I went to the John Lucas uh, Center uh, for recovery. And he taught me that there's different levels of alcoholics. Just because you don't consume alcohol, you can have an alcohol mentality, uh, behavior. And so that, that was my whole problem. So being there, going through that, seeing the different dynamics of uh, what people go through on a daily basis when, they're, when they have an addiction, um, and being able to separate the, the addiction, the alcohol itself, and being a, a, a professional basketball player, I had to get myself in order. So I ended up staying with John for ooh, approximately a year and a half, working out in the summer times, going to meetings. And then I ended up trying out for his team, the San Antonio Spurs. Thought I made the team. Everybody else on the team thought I made the team. David Robinson, Terry Cummings, uh, Willie Anderson, uh, Alvin Robertson, all these guys were excited for me, like, you're going to make it. We're, the last preseason game, we're getting, we're, the plan lands, lands back in San Antonio. He calls me to the front, and he cut me. Wow. So right then and there, I made the decision that I would never leave it into anyone else's hands for my success. And so that following year, went back to the Quad City Thunder. And I, before the season started, I went back home and I didn't hang out. I, I, I lived in a gym, weight room, 
on the basketball court, like I had a buddy of mine, uh, Jose Wesley, rest in peace. He had the key to the gym. I would literally sleep in the gym every day and wake up at two in the morning, shoot, run, uh, go to sleep, wake up at six, shoot, run. They opened the gym at nine. I would get up with the guys, shoot, run. And so I wasn't going to leave it in anyone else's hands for my success. And so when that season started, uh, I had never been uh, all league. Uh, I was on like the all defensive team, like third team. But my goal was to win the championship, win the MVP, and win the MVP of the playoffs. And I won all three, and we won the championship. And from then on, that's when Willis Reed gave me a call and gave me my first shot with the Nets in the NBA. Chris, that's such a cool story. Like, I, I never knew that. And that's why I appreciate you opening up about the whole thing. You know, what people don't realize is like, you know, the CBA, for example, what, you know, the, the league itself, just hearing the mental grind that it was for you, but it also was a stepping stone and a, a, a turning point for not only your career as a basketball player, but your career as a, as a man, right. Just as a human being, uh, that story right there, it's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, I, I do feel, and I'm curious your thoughts here. I do feel that like the G league, for example, and some of these, you know, the, they call them lower tier leagues, but they're, they're stepping stones. These are developmental leagues. Um, I do feel that there is a place for them. Do you feel that like that was overall a positive? I mean, obviously hearing your story, like there was, it was a turning point for you, but it was really hard for you as well. Do you feel it's a positive thing to have a developmental league here in the United States? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, everybody's not ready for the NBA and what people fail to realize is that when you go to those to that level, even the, the CBA, the D-League, uh, overseas, the NBA, at the most, in a 24-hour day, you work out four hours. Uh, whether it's two hours on the court with your team, hour or so in the weight room, then you get a massage, get in the steam or whatever. But now, what do you do with the other 20 hours of your day? That's where people get lost at and they lose track and they get caught, uh, caught up in other things uh, other than basketball. So that's the professional side, uh, the business side that uh, a lot of young players, even myself, when I first came out, wasn't aware of, is that there's other entities uh, underneath that umbrella, which is the NBA team that you're responsible for, that you're representing. And a lot of... Uh, Young kids, uh, 18, 19 year olds coming to the league fail to realize. And what the CBA teaches you is that they're all good players. You know, there's no bad players in the CBA, the one I were playing. And looking at the, um, the G League, uh, D League, I, there's no bad players in any league to me. Because if you're a professional, you're good at something. Right. You just have to, you, you have to find out what you what the what the teams are looking for for you to come into that situation for me when i was coming out i knew that i can stand on my defense that i had nba caliber defense that i can shoot the ball but i had to learn how to run a ball club because i wasn't only responsible for myself i was responsible for the other four that was on the court the other guys coming off the bench the guys on the other team what they do well so I had to become a student of the game and, and learn how to run a ball club. And so um, for these young guys in college, uh, even in high school, it starts now. Understand what your role is 
uh, on any given team, some pieces are bigger than others. But they, uh, to make a puzzle, you need all pieces. So why not be a piece of the puzzle, whether it's a guy that you can be the best leader on the bench, but you have a spot because what happens when you show that type of uh, teamwork and uh, unselfishness, it gives you an opportunity after basketball where that franchise that you play for will look at that film and look at that guy on the end of the bench cheering for everybody, patting the guy on the backside, uh, giving them motivation speeches. They want that guy to be a part of the ultimate business side of basketball. And so that's what the young kids have to remember, that you might not be the, the star on the team or you might not get the opportunity to uh, play in every game or some games, but there's nothing wrong with being in upper management as well. Right. Man, <laughs> <laughs> man that's, that's super cool, man. It's super cool to hear your insight there. Now, Chris, you go from the CBA, you built your foundation, going over to the Nets. This is a question I, I always want to hear the insight from those who have been there. You know, the biggest transition, because some people will say like in the developmental leagues or even smaller colleges, like some some developmental leagues, those those games in some arenas are less than what you'd see in a high school game, depending on where you're coming from in the country. And I mean, sometimes they're smaller than collegiate games. It, it really just depends on where you're, you're watching them at. Then you go into the NBA. Um, what was the biggest transition? Like what... Like, what was the biggest transition, whether it be difficulty or just an aha, like, whoa, moment for you going from that level to now you're at the you're in the big leagues now? Well, luckily for me, when I got to the NBA, I was 25. So I was a man. I wasn't, you know, a, a young kid. And so when I got there, the main thing was every night you're going up against the best at every position. And I was I didn't only have to guard ones I had to guard too. So one night I'll have Tim Hardaway, uh Allen Iverson, Rod Strickland, Terrell Brandon. And then the next night I got a guard too. So I got a guard Michael, Kobe, Scotty Pippen, Mitch Richmond. Uh I mean the names go on and on. So I go from guarding a six foot point guard to a six eight two guard. Six six, you know, so uh, I had to be ready mentally. And, you know, I was a, I was a student of the game. Uh, I was, I kept myself in phenomenal shape. And, you know, the genes that I had coming from my mom and my father, I was a strong, I had a strong lower body that I would be able to use to my advantage. Now, you can't stop a great offensive player, but you can try to limit them as much as possible and then pray to the father above that they have an off night. <laughs> you know, especially going up against Michael and Kobe, you know, those guys shoot high volume. So you just pray like, please, God, let them have an off night tonight because I don't want my kids to be embarrassed at school tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can imagine that, though. It's, that's a lot. And I guess, like you said, every night you're going up against the best at that level, like everybody's good all the time. And that's that's how it works, I guess, for every level of sports right you go from middle school to high school high school to college and it, sometimes college you're going from a juco to a d1 or whatever it may be and then if, you, if you're lucky enough to go to the professional level it's, that's kind of how it works and everybody gets better and better and just naming those names off that's you it's a mental grind as much as it is a physical grind i'm sure because you have to be alert that's crazy the the names you mentioned i, I want to know when you first got in if there were any players on the nets that kind of took you under their wing to kind of get you used to the nba game um that you remember well i, I know that uh when I got there, it was Kenny Anderson was a starter. 
at the point guard, we became close, but I was our, I was older than him. So it was, it was kind of difficult for him to lead per se. But I remember Rick Mahorn. Uh, we used to sit there and, and talk the game. Uh, David Wingate uh, out of uh, Georgetown. I had Vern Fleming uh, play in Indiana. Um, I had uh, Coach Paul Silas uh, who took me under his wing, Stan Albeck. So I had all veteran coaches, Jerry Eves. These guys were older coaches that have been in the league, players that have been in the league. And the main thing they just told me is, Chris, be yourself. Don't go up against the grain that, you know, to do what the other guys do, do what you do best. And so at that, I wasn't hanging out. Uh, I was still sober. I was drinking. Everybody looking at me like, why is he drinking cranberry and Sprite? I said, because you don't want to see the guy that drinks the other stuff. So I'm going to stay with this. But they respected my boundaries. You know, I, I set boundaries because, like I said, I was 25. I was a man. So I, I set boundaries and they respected them. Um, it was it was a great team. We we had a lot of talent. We didn't win as much, but uh, I'll I'll never forget the team, the guys, and the camaraderie, and uh, what I learned uh, being a net. That's so cool, man. It's it's just crazy talking to somebody who's been there though, and just hearing some of those names you're dropping. And you know, later in the in the career, you know, you go over to the Knicks, and that's where you 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 know played a few years over there with with New York. Um, a pretty good franchise, really good franchise at the yeah. time, especially like you guys were going through some peaks. Uh, talk to me about your experience with the Knicks overall. Like, what was it like in those practices with some of the guys that you had as teammates with the Knicks? Man, tell me about those practices. We want to hear about that stuff. Man, um, <laughs> that yeah, I think that was nice. I want to say 96, 97 season. Uh, after the 96 season, I got trade. Well, I didn't get traded, I was a free agent. And so the Knicks were in transition, so they brought over myself, Larry Johnson, and Allen Houston uh, to make them younger, uh, faster, more powerful. And um, they had already had Patrick was still there, Charles Oakley, John Starks, Charlie Ward. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, man, so when I got that, still my, my style of play they didn't have to change me. So I was already bringing that tenacity there and that, that, uh, that dog mentality per se, but our practices were harder than the games. I mean, uh, Jeff Van Gundy, we had to tape for shoot around. We had to tape our ankles for shoot around. Talk Explain, so that, that, yeah, uh, explain the reasoning behind that, though, so people can understand. Like, <laughs> that's how intense it. Like, talk to us about that. Well, what what happens? Like, usually in an NBA game, before you the day of the game, you have a shoot around to go over the other teams' plays, just to get loose to work up a lather. And so we get there, and Jeff's mentality was, you you practice how you play. And so our Shoot around is not, okay, we come in and shoot, you know, lollygag around. We go change into our practice gear. We tape, and we go all out like it's a regular practice. And I'm, trying, I'm looking like, no, we have a, we have a game today. You don't really. He's like, that's that, that was that Pat Riley's mentality that Jeff got from Pat Riley before Pat Riley moved on to Miami. And so our practices were like slugfest. We fought each other. 
Uh, it was fights. It was blood. Uh, but after practice, there was no hard feelings. You would shake the guy's hand. Because I remember me, John and I getting to fist of cups a couple of times. I remember Charlie and John getting into it. I remember uh, Oak getting into it. with. I mean, we just – it was a normal day for us. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, all right, we're mad at each other. We can't go out there and perform. We policed ourselves, and we wanted the best from each other. And if you weren't giving your best, the coach didn't have to um, tell you one of the players would. Because I remember the first first week I was there, uh, Oak and I just uh, Charles Oakley just automatically became tight. You know, we on the road together, we're playing dominoes, going to dinner. So the first week, he sees how how I come to the uh, gym to the weight room. I go before practice and work on my game, my shots, and how I practice for the whole two hours, like like it was nothing. And so after one practice, he said, all right, listen, I'll take care of all the big guys. You take care of all the guards. And so I was like, what do you mean? Like, if anybody gets out of hand, it's your job to take care of the guards. I'll take care of the big guys. So when any of, like, you know, John wasn't practicing, I would get in his face, Charlie, didn't have to really worry about Charlie because Charlie came all the time. But uh, when Spreewell was there or any of those guys didn't want to practice or wasn't giving it their all, I was right in their face to let them know. And if they didn't like how I was speaking to them, then we can go in the locker room and have our business like men and then come back out and go to practice. Man, I love this. This is the stuff I love as a as somebody, you know, this is during the time that I was growing up. I was in elementary school. And so I remember those Knicks teams. Because I actually yeah. really I loved Spreewell. He was one of my favorite players. And so I remember you guys. That's what's so crazy to me now. Like flash forward 25 years, and I'm like, holy cow. So here in the behind the scenes, that totally makes sense. So that's why you guys were so good. It was a tight knit unit. Um, and you guys were just you were dogs. Um, and obviously, Chris, I'm sure you've talked about this a million times in your life since then. You know, you're not scared to get tough, right? And it wasn't just with your your teammates. Rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. But there was the altercation with Kobe. Talk to us about that. Did you did you and Kobe go to dinner after the game? Like, how was that whole scenario when you know it's been all over the place with you and him? You weren't scared of him. Um, and I always respected that about you. Like a lot of guys get intimidated. You know, they'll get physical and stuff, but they got intimidated. But you weren't scared of him. <laughs> you, you went you went to fist with the man. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, it's not about going out there and pretending or portraying a, um, to be a tough guy. It wasn't anything about that. I, I'm i a, a firm believer that you protect yourself at all times. You defend yourself. You don't start anything, but that's what my dad told me. Don't start it, but by damn, you better finish it. And so when I'm playing the game, I don't mind the, the rough play, long as it stays below the shoulders. And because I've had four concussions and you can really hurt yourself. I have four concussions, and I fractured my uh, orbital bone in my right eye. So when elbows get high, uh, I take offense to that. Um, I chased the Kimbe Mutombo out of our locker room with a chair because he knocked two of my teeth out and didn't apologize. So he came to the locker room to talk to Patrick, and I told him, you can't come in here. And then in his Mutombo voice, he said, well, what are you going to do? And so I picked up a chair and I was like, I'm going to show you. And he ran out of there. And so uh, with the with the Kobe thing, rest in peace, it was just a part of the game back then that, right. um, you know, you defend yourself. And he was a young guy. Uh, 
making his mark. And uh, I was at home and, well, not at home, but close to home in Los Angeles. That's where the game was at. And so I had family members there. So my uh, ego was, you know, on on a high at that time. And so uh, we got tied up a couple times. He threw a couple of elbows. And I tried to get the ref, Monty McCutcheon, uh, who I knew in the CBA to take care of it. And he gave me the emoji uh, shrug, like, I don't know. I'm like, okay. And so I, I, you know, I just told KVSA, man, you do that again, you know, I'm going to take off. And he did it again. And I I had to, you know, let it be known that uh, I'm not one to play with. I'm not one to uh, let anybody throw elbows above the shoulders. And it wasn't just him. It was uh, anybody. It was Michael. It can be, it can be any player. Um, there, we're all men, and we all have a responsibility to our particular teams. And uh, I had a responsibility as being, like Oak said, taking care of the guards and setting a standard uh, for the Knicks that we are not, you know, going to be challenged that way. Uh, not that we were bullies. But we were going to play a certain brand of basketball uh, each and every night. And if you interfered with that, then that was going to be a problem. I love it, man. And I love the mentality. It's like you said, you're not bullies. You're, you weren't out there instigating it, but no, you, not finished at all. It if it, you finished it, you defend yourself at all times. That's that's kind of how I think it should be, right? That's Don't start stuff. Don't You don't need to be doing that, but you should be able to protect yourself and you know have some pride in your own in your own self and for your team. You know, Chris, you, you had an awesome career just going through the NBA after you had made it there and, and, you know, you played over 540 games. I mean, it's just crazy at the professional level. It's not easy to do. Um, and I'm sure you have a ton of memories, but what was your favorite arena? Was it Madison Square Garden or what was your favorite arena outside of your home arena? I guess like it, it with New York, you played everywhere. Uh, what was your favorite arena to play in and why? Well, my number one arena to play in was, is, is, was the Pavilion. All oh, right, okay. so let, let's let's get that out there. Even though we had what, what did, what did the pavilion hold? I think between four, maybe 12,000, 12,800, 12, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you're spot yeah, 12,800, and it was the loudest place on earth. And so, Boise, that's you know, that's number one, of course, Massacre Garden. But uh, I loved going to the old Boston Garden. Um, the Miami arena was very nice because we, we would have, you know, New York fans there and they would have Miami fans and they had those little clickers <laughs> and it was so loud, but I loved it. Uh, I played in Venezuela before and that place was raucous. Uh, Indiana, the old, uh, the arena that Indiana Pacers played in. So, yeah, those are some of the top ones that I that I enjoyed. And then when I got traded to Toronto uh, at the time, it was called the Eaton Center. And that place, with it being a, a fairly new franchise, uh, those people were hungry for basketball. So cool hearing it from you, man. Who was uh, probably the top two players you played with and the top two players you played against during your career? Uh, of course, top two that I played with. <laughs> Uh, was uh Patrick and uh Vince Carter, BC, huh? Okay, okay. Yeah. 
Before we move on to the ones you played against, tell me why those were your top two. Like, what did they teach you in your career? Why did why were they your top two that you played with? Well, it's not what the, it's what we taught each other. Okay. Uh, pa- Patrick and I didn't get along at first because he was a superstar. I was a new point guard coming in, and he was used to demanding and talking to people a certain way, and I wouldn't allow that because, like I said, I came there 25 as a young man. I mean, yes, young men. So we got off to a rocky start, but we learned how to respect each other and grow with each other, uh, even though we didn't agree all the time. And that's what's missing. You don't have to agree with the person, but as long as you respect them. And so we found that common ground. So I I appreciate Beast. We call him Beast very much, and I wish him all the luck um, at Georgetown uh, with this team. And if he's watching, Patrick, I'm sending him shoes to you soon to sign. Um, Vince was a young lion when I got there and he uh, we lived in the same condo and he was right across the hall from me and he he didn't like hanging out or coming out so we would just sit there and talk you know in front of our door and I'm like Vince I'm going out I don't know about you but I'm getting ready to go he said well can you bring me something I said I'm not bringing you anything you're going to come with me and so gradually got him out of that shell uh, of, of who he was and, and because everybody wanted something from him when I got there. And I, t- I don't want anything from you. I just want you to be the best version that you can be because I think you can be better than what you display. And he was already an all-star, but I told him I thought he can be better if he did certain things in his game. And so uh, I enjoyed that, that part of it because I became a mentor uh to to Vince as well as Alvin Williams, uh Mo P, uh Jerome Williams, Junkyard Dog, and all those guys. And then at the same time, I'm on that team with Dale Curry. And I, I was there when Steph and Seth, it was like six and seven with my son, Jesse, and those kids at eleven years of age were shooting three pointers with their left hand because of how much work they were putting in in the gym with their dads, and just to see the, the the caliber of player that Steph himself has become from the toolage of their father, Dell, is just remarkable. Um, now, the players that I've played against, I mean, I think, well, I'm, I'm not going to say the obvious because I always say Michael and Allen Iverson, but I like to give uh, a shout-out to a couple of guys that don't get the credit that I think are two of the best point guards ever played a game, and that's Rod Strickland and Terrell Brandon. Uh, Rod out of DePaul, Terrell out of Oregon. Uh, two of the most underrated, difficult guards to play against because most times I have the advantage of strength, all right, and some of them quickness, but those guys had both, and they were crafty with the ball, so they made it more difficult for me to guard them than I would say Allen Iverson because Allen had a streamline uh, burst of speed and quickness. Those guys had that change of tempo. You know, I use the, um, the analogy, a baseball analogy, like a baseball player, a pitcher doesn't become great. He can just throw 100 miles an hour fastballs, but you can catch up to those. Right. But Nolan Ryan, Doc Gooden, and all those guys didn't become great. Uh, what's the uh, Randy Johnson? Those guys didn't become great until they was able to take something off the ball and change tempos. 
whether it's curveball, knuckleball, slider, uh, and so on. So in basketball, when, once you learn how to change speeds and keep the defense, you know, guessing, that's when you become great. And that's what made those two guys difficult. So I could have said Michael, Allen Iverson, Magic, all those guys, but I want to get Rod Strickland and Terrell Brandon uh, a shout out because I enjoy competing against those two gentlemen. I appreciate you doing that too. Um, those are names that we all know as well for basketball fans. So it's good to hear that too. And and the reasoning behind it is super intriguing too. For any of the athletes out there, young athletes especially, hear what Chris just said. Like it's not always just going 100 miles an hour all the time, changing tempo. And so there's a lot to the game that makes it extremely. You don't have to be a big name player with all the spotlight, but if you can do those things, you can make it very very difficult to defend. Um, and you can take over games if you have those little nuances to the game. Change in tempo is a huge one, um, especially Absolutely. in the sport of basketball. So that was, that's huge. huge. Change of pace. Oh, it's such a it's a such a good thing. I'm I'm really appreciative that you just said that. Now, Chris, as we wrap up the, the conversation, I know your time is precious. I I, I really just want to know, like for all the athletes out there that are coming up and they want to, you know, make it to the next level, they truly do. I, I just have a few questions for you. The first would be, what what advice would you give them in regards to like what do they need to expect in regards to the work that goes into it? We just heard like your story. It wasn't just an overnight success. You were going as hard as you could. And then you went through the CBA and you had some moments, some, some ups and downs. And then you thought you were going to make it to the NBA with the Spurs. And then you had to go back through and you, then you put the work in and then you get over to the nets. It was a journey. So with the younger athletes out there, what would you say they should be expecting in regards to the work that needs to be put in? Well, the, the, the word I use is perseverance. Uh, nothing's going to happen overnight. Um, especially coming from a small school, maybe so, I'm not sure. But for me, uh, it's perseverance that you, even when, if you think you're working hard, you can always work harder. You can always work harder because I'm a firm believer. If you go into the gym, whether it's the weight room, whether it's on the track, whether it's uh, on the court, whether it's you're shooting shots, if you're not drenching in sweat, and you're not hurting. When you leave the gym, then you wasted a day. Because what you have to do is understand the pain that goes through being a professional and getting to that level. It has to hurt. You, you know, it really has to hurt to where you're almost willing to give up. Because once you get through that, once you, you God willing, you get there, then it's, it's easier. It, it became easier when I got there. It was the hard, it was the work and the pain uh, of getting there that was the difficult part because you have to go in the gym and I tell young kids that I train today, if you haven't shot 5,000 shots a day, then you're not shooting enough shots because everything is muscle memory. You have to, that arm and that hand has to literally hurt and you have to hold it up and then you go home, you eat right, you, eat your, you drink your liquids and you wake up, you do it over again. And you do it over again. You do it over and over and over again to where there's no more pain. But you have to get through the pain first to, to really understand the process and the the um, the efforts and the uh, perseverance that it's going to take to be a professional. Because once you get there, it's a business. It's a business. Now, now you, you, you work for someone. You work for a Fortune 500 company. So now... You're, now you're, and I, and I, I also want to say this for the young kids coming up, high school, grade school, junior college, college, CBA, uh, D-League, whatever it is, 
my dad told me this. When you wake up in the morning and you walk out that door, you are auditioning for someone. Someone is watching. So be on your best. Be your best version of you because someone is watching. First impression is the best impression. Uh, as a father, the one thing that the, the joy that myself and my ex-wife Carla would receive when we were living in Boise was that people would come up and tell us how cordial our kids are and how much of a pleasure they are to be around. As a parent, that's all you want to hear. That's all you want to hear. So when I'm telling these kids, when you walk out that door, you're auditioning for somebody, be the best version of you and it'll take you a long way in life. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. Last question I have for you, Chris, as we wrap up the interview, it'd be who was the biggest influence in your life and why? Wow, that's that's a hard one to 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 really answer, but uh, you know, I had mom and dad, so it was it was both. Um uh, my 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 dad was my go-to. Uh you know how most guys you have a friend that you call and you know, throw things to to you know see if it sticks against the wall or it comes back at you or whatever. Yeah. Uh, my dad was that guy. Um, he was very articulate. Uh, he spoke a couple of languages. Um, I just remember when I was younger, I would come home and I was doing my homework and I didn't understand what a word meant. And I would ask him, and oh, God, that was the wrong person to ask because. He's not going to give you anything. He's going to point to the library and he's going to point to the dictionary. So you see that book? I was like, yes, sir. He said, go get that book. And you fair, you find out what that word means. What that word means. And when you come back, I want you to write a paragraph to tell me what it means. And so as I got older, I stopped coming home doing my <laughs> homework. I started doing it at the library at school because I didn't want to have to perform and under that pressure of uh, writing a paragraph every time. But that was just the, the man that he was, that he didn't want anything given to us. And that taught me that I had to go out and earn what I wanted. Nothing's given to you in life. And so and then my mother, on the other hand, was just such a strong Christian presence in the home that she kept everybody together. We didn't have all the money. Uh, but she made sure that we pre we were presented well in front of people, that uh, the family stayed tight knit, and that uh, if I didn't, there was morals. I couldn't get an earring. I couldn't. You're not supposed to wear a hat in the house. You don't curse. You you you, you you're a gentleman. You're you're a young man and present yourself that way. And so, my dad is no longer here. Rest in peace. But my mother's here. But his spirit lives in me every day. Uh, I, I enjoy them tremendously. And, uh, you know, when people ask me, you know, yeah, I've, I've I've looked up to athletes. Ricky Henderson was my favorite baseball player. Uh, enjoyed him tremendously. And um, basketball-wise, it was Walt Frazier and Dr. J. But, you know, my role model and the person I looked at, the persons that I looked up to most was my mother and father. So awesome, man. And I appreciate you sharing that as well. Those are some good life lessons and you have amazing parents. So that's incredible. Um, yeah, man, it's been um, a blessing and an honor to have you on here, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, again, 
this is Chris Childs. I mean, this is, I'm sitting here <laughs> uh, like giddy. I've been doing this show for four years, Chris, but I still get super excited when I get to talk to people like yourself. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining the show and being willing to share your story with us. Hey, you're welcome, Shane. And uh, anything that I can do in the future uh, to help promote your show, you got my number. Don't hesitate. Appreciate you, my man. And for everybody out there, I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And uh, if you guys haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do so and share this with anybody that you think can benefit from Chris's words and Chris's story. Take care, guys, and we'll be coming to you next week with another interview. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars, and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.